Pastor Brent, if you're new, good to be here. Um, today we are going to learn about Jesus's resurrection from the dead. And without question, the resurrection is central to everything we believe and is the fount from which flows all of the hope that we have for today and for the future. Friends, we serve a risen Savior. How incredible! The empty tomb is proof that Jesus has power and victory over sin and evil and death. And the, 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 in, he has power indeed over all of history that all things hang on the truth that there's resurrection hope in Jesus. So if you're new with us this morning, I want to tell you um, just a quick reminder about what we do here and kind of how we approach the preaching and teaching of God's word. So a little caveat on uh, before we move ahead in today's passage. Um, we believe really passionately here at our church that God has spoken through his word. And I'm passionate about making God the center of attention as we hear from him. So some of you have heard this from me before, but I like to a couple times a year make sure that we're on the same page about what we're doing here. I want to remind you of this. Whenever we open up God's word, and when I speak about it or preach, I have this image in my mind, I'm kind of like a visual person, that I want to hold up God's word to be in the center and stand off to the side and tell you as passionately and as, as, as powerfully, as, as, as compellingly as possible what God wants to say to you today. That he's the center of attention. And that we want to hear from him. It's not about a pep talk. It's not about having a clever thing to say. It's not about me. I want to make sure that we explain and illustrate and apply what God's word says so that we can hear from him. So that's, that's what we're doing. That's what we do week by week. So as we get started here, as we encounter this passage, let me ask you a question as we get started. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Yes. yes. Well, often when we hear this word believe, let's just step back for a moment. When we say those words, sometimes when we hear the word believe in our culture, in our day, in our time, the word believe is often associated with believing in things that aren't real. It's believing in fairy tales or myths or things that you can't prove. That's how people often use that word. We often think of superstitions or things that can't be uh, can't be proven. And honestly, many people in our world simply call Jesus' resurrection from the dead a myth or a fairy tale. Now, I have two daughters who really love uh, reading books. They love books of all kinds. I love reading books with them. And Sarah and I try and read to them every night. And typically, uh, I get, we, we kind of divide and conquer. So I read with my older daughter, Annabelle. And she loves adventure novels. She loves classic fiction books. We've read books like the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, or a, uh, we've read a number of classic Jules Verne uh, novels and stories. And right now we're reading the original Peter Pan by J.M. Barrie from 1911. Now, it occurred to me while reading this book that sometimes our culture treats believing in Jesus like believing in Peter Pan. They, they think that the goal of Christianity is like a trip to Neverland. Some people think that what it means to be a Christian is to believe in a mythical person who will someday show up, teach us how to fly, and take us away to a magical place. And that the Holy Spirit is sort of like a pixie dust, that we need to just think happy thoughts every day as we follow God in order to make it to heaven. 
Now, some of us might be in this story kind of like the, the grumpy dad, George, who refuses to believe. <laughs> some might be like the dog, Nana, who are afraid that they're going to get left behind. But friends, when we, when we think about this word believe, the word believe in the Bible is so much more. Believing in Jesus is not wishful thinking. It's not a baseless myth. Rather, the scriptures, and we need to be clear about this as we encounter the Bible, the scriptures present real historical evidence, a true account of a Savior who has risen from the dead, and the honest struggles are presented in scripture of those who know him best. The struggles for them to understand and accept that he really is alive. The scriptures unfold this story of people trying to wrap their minds around the reality that Jesus is alive. So, let me ask, I'll ask this question again. Do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay, open with me to John chapter 20. John 20. I might have put the wrong passage there on the screen, so sorry about that. That's last week. So it happens when you copy and paste the, uh, the title slide. John 20 verses 1 through 18 is where we're going to be today. So John 20, John 20, 1 through 18. Now, this chapter, as we look at John 20, is the account of Jesus' resurrection. And the whole chapter is centered on a key word. It's this word, believe. This word, believe, occurs six times in this passage. And the word, believe, occurs 87 times in the Gospel of John. It's a central concept for John. Now, this biblical word, believe, means more than simply believing that someone exists. It means to trust. It's a word that defines what is your heart devoted to, what you give your life to, what you rely upon in an ultimate sense. So here's what we're going to do as we look at this passage. We're actually going to look at John 20 over the next couple sermons from the Gospel of John. We'll sort of skip a week next week for a teen challenge. But we're going to look at four examples in John 20 over the next couple weeks of people who came to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. They came to trust in him. They came to have faith in him. And these four examples are very much like you and me. Each represent the struggles that we can have to believe. As we study John 20 over the next couple sermons, we're going to see this. When, when we're told that Jesus has risen from the dead, we can often have one of four reactions. Shock, Confusion, fear, or doubt. That can be how people first encounter this. And so what we're going to see, these four main characters in this chapter experience shock and confusion and fear and doubt as we see Jesus' first appearances to his disciples in the wake of his resurrection. And yet they come to believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. So we're going to focus our attention this morning on the first two the shock and confusion with the Apostle John and Mary Magdalene. So let's read our text. This is the account of Jesus' resurrection and the reaction of the first people who discovered the empty tomb. Pick it up in John 20, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. 
Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if, you, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that she had said, seen, uh, she, had, she told them that he had said these things to her. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to, again, we're going to look at the two examples of faith, of coming to believe that we see in these first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection as they overcome their shock and confusion to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So let's look at the first example. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10 that describe mostly focusing on the Apostle John himself. Now, if you remember, we've talked about this a number of times as we've gone through the passage or, or through the Gospel of John here, that when we see the words, the other disciple or the one that Jesus loved, John's talking about himself. He's the main character of this first section in verses 1 through 10. So here's how the scene unfolds. Let me sort of walk you through it. It was early Sunday morning, just before dawn. A woman named Mary Magdalene, she went to the tomb where Jesus had been buried. She was there to complete the burial rituals, the, the burial process, by pouring more spices and oils over the body, which we know from Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel. They describe what Mary was there to do. Now, Mary was one of Jesus' earliest followers. She was from a small village on the Sea of Galilee called Magdala. So the gospel writers distinguish her from other Marys, because there's multiple Marys in the gospels, by calling her Mary Magdalene, which means Mary from Magdala. It's the location where she's from. Now, we learned last week that Jesus was hastily buried on Friday afternoon because the Sabbath was about to begin at sundown. The Jewish leaders didn't want these crucified bodies of Jesus and the other two men hanging there during this special Sabbath 
while the Passover continued. And so here we are, Sunday morning, after the Sabbath is complete, and Mary's at the tomb to pay her respects and finish the burial process. Now, as she walks up to the tomb, which was a cave cut into a hill of limestone just outside the city walls, she sees the stone has been rolled away. It's been moved away from the entrance. Now, if you want to know what a tomb looks like from the first century, we have a, I have a picture of it here that we'll go to on the next slide. This is the interior of a tomb. This is a, kind of a different picture. I've shown a, an inside of a tomb uh, before. Um, this is a picture I took uh, visiting Israel. This is in the, the hill country of Judea. This is uh, what a tomb would have looked like where generations of the same family would have been buried in a tomb cut out of a hillside deep inside and they would have slots where the bodies would be slid in and you'd be buried together generationally and around the base of the interior was usually a little bench or a series of steps and so likely this is, this is what a typical large room would have looked like. And, and, and this bench would have been where Jesus' body would have been laid during this burial process, waiting until the process could have been complete and they'd slide him into one of these chambers. And so it was common in the ancient world, knowing that when you have these generational graves and you potentially have potentially valuable things in there, grave robbery was fairly common in the ancient world. And so, as soon as Mary sees the stone rolled away, she assumes that something bad has happened. And so she runs back to the city of Jerusalem. She goes back into the city walls to tell the two leaders of the disciples, Peter and John, what happened. Now, this is one of my favorite parts of the story. Peter and John start running. And can you imagine the adrenaline at this moment? Mary comes and says, they moved the stone. I don't know where Jesus' body is. They immediately take off. You can imagine 6 a.m., whatever, sunrise, and they're just, pew, leave their breakfast behind. Now, they don't know what to think, and, and they need to get to the tomb fast. Now, Peter was the oldest of the disciples and apparently not in very good shape. <laughs> he takes off first. And he, he gets a head start. And you can see John, he's the younger one, but he was apparently faster. You can imagine John takes off second and he catches up to Peter along the path and he passes him and he's looking over his shoulder. He's like, hurry up, we got to get over there. And Peter huffing and puffing, trying to struggle and keeping up with John. Now, John arrives at the tomb first, but he didn't go inside right away. Did you notice that in the text? Now, remember, it's barely dawn. The tomb would have been very dark. And for all we knew, and for all, for all John knew, the, the people robbing this grave could have still been inside. So he's not going to just rush in. Now, you've got to remember this. John was one of Jesus' closest disciples. He'd been with Jesus for three years. He'd seen all the miracles. He'd heard all of the stories. He had listened to Jesus' teaching for three years. And even though John had been an eyewitness to everything Jesus had done and said, he was still in shock when he arrives at the tomb. He saw him feed the 5,000. He collected the leftovers. 
He watched him heal people. He listened to what Jesus had taught. And yet, as he arrives, he's in absolute shock. He's cautious about peering in. He looks in and he sees the linen burial cloth lying there, but he doesn't go inside. But then here comes Peter. Okay, you've gotten to know Peter over the course of studying the Gospel of John, but of course, if you know Peter from the rest of the Gospels, we know that Peter, remember, is kind of a shoot first, aim later kind of a guy. He does not even stop. He just goes straight into the tomb, probably thinking, if there's somebody in there, I'm going to clock him. (laughs) He finally goes to the tomb, catching his breath, huffing and puffing as he goes straight inside and he sees the burial cloths lying there in the place where Jesus had been laid. And no one's there. The cloths are laying in such a way that it's like Jesus' body just vanished. And finally, John goes in and he sees the cloths lying on that bench. And the text says these profound words in verse 8. Go back to your text and look with me. Finally, the other disciple, talking about himself, who reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. Do you hear the weightiness of these words? I just, I want you to pause and think about this. Can you put yourself in John's shoes? shocked, unable to even step inside the tomb at first because he can't even wrap his mind around what's happening. You see, John writes these words about himself for a reason. He wants us to grapple with our own honest reactions to the truth of the resurrection. John records his own experience here to draw us into to how do we encounter this reality of the resurrection? This is like his confession, his testimony. See, maybe, maybe this is you. Maybe this, maybe this has been you. Maybe this is you now, standing on the outside, hanging around the edges like John was, reserving judgment on who Jesus is and what he's claimed to be and what he has done not willing yet to take a leap of faith. Maybe you feel that tug and pull on your heart. But because maybe you've been burned in the past, hurt by a church, maybe you've wondered if God really loves you, you might hear me say, Jesus has risen. And you might feel like that's too much. Too much for you. You might feel like it's beyond your understanding that you can't even open your heart to that reality or all the implications that will follow from a risen Savior who demands the full surrender of your life. You might feel like you can't even go there, like you can't step inside for yourself to see if it's real. If this is you, I want you to see this. John admits in verse 9 that he still didn't quite fully understand even at this moment. Did you notice that? And yet he still believes. He couldn't quite put the pieces together. It's still forming in his mind. He's trying to understand, wait a second, I've heard that in the Old Testament. I remember Jesus saying this. He told us about that. I can't, I, I, it's, I, I'm not, sh- I, don't, I don't understand. I don't see this quite clearly. And yet, 
as he remembers how the scriptures foretold the resurrection. As he thinks about what Jesus has spoken. As he takes this moment to choose to step into the tomb. He's confronted with a truth that demands his trust. It calls forth his devotion. It motivates his heart at a level he can't completely explain. This is what it's called faith. And if you don't feel like you can fully understand the resurrection, I think John sharing his story, it's a challenge for you. Step inside and see that Jesus truly is alive. Okay, let's go now. Let's go now to look at the second example. Because I think as we are impacted with this reality of John saying, I believe, we now look at a, 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 the intensification of, of, of this next step of someone else encountering Jesus. Not just seeing the grave clothes, but actually seeing Jesus face to face. Okay, now go to verses 11 to 18. We're going to look at Mary's confusion as she encounters Jesus. Okay, let's pick it up there in verse 11. Okay, remember what's happening in this story. Mary stayed at the tomb. Okay, Peter and John apparently leave. And Mary had followed them back to the tomb. And as they're confused and trying to figure out what's going on, and, and then they leave and depart, she had delivered this news and, and, and then followed. Now she remains outside the tomb and, and she's weeping. Peter and John leave and Mary alone is standing there and she gathers up the courage to look inside. Now, friends, this woman is privileged to be the first recipient of the announcement of the best news in the history of the entire world. Do you see this? The angel, there's an angel that appears as she looks into the tomb. Two angels are there on the bench where Jesus' body had been. And they say, why are you crying? In other words, I don't want you to miss this. What they're saying is, there's no reason to cry. Don't you realize what's happened here? And Mary responds with this desperation and confusion. She doesn't know where Jesus' body has gone. She says, if, if you know where they put him, tell me. I'm going to go get him. Just please help me. I think this is exactly how most of us would respond. See, Mary's terrified that thieves have stolen the body of Jesus. She's weeping. She can hardly see because the tears are overwhelming, filling her eyes. She can't even breathe, really. She can't think clearly at this moment. And suddenly, two angels are speaking to her. And she just wants to know where Jesus is. Just tell me where Jesus is. Now, she turns around and sees Jesus standing there. And she thinks that he's the gardener. This is so funny. I think, it's, I think it's just great. Okay, let me ask you. Have you ever asked a question of someone in a store who you thought was an employee and it turns out they weren't? Okay, yeah, I've done that too. Well, years ago, um, I made the mistake of wearing a red polo shirt and khaki pants in, tar in Target. So I go into Target, I'm walking around, and people, one after another, start asking me questions. Can you tell me where the such and such is? And I'm like, why are they asking me this? And I look down and I go, oh. So after a while, I'm annoyed by it, but then I just started helping them. 
Because what else do you do at that moment? So this is basically what Mary does to Jesus. She turns around and she sees this figure standing in the doorway of the tomb. Now, probably it's dark inside the tomb. It's daylight outside the tomb. She's seeing the silhouette of this man. And she probably could only see just, just making out this shape because of the bright light behind him. She thinks that he's the servant who takes care of the garden area around the tomb. Now, what's interesting here, she doesn't even speak first. Jesus is the one to speak first. She's so... She's so overwhelmed at this moment, distraught, wondering where Jesus is, that Jesus' question to her is so revealing. Okay, go to the text and look with me. Verse 15. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? This question is loaded with meaning. It's, it's not simply tell, the, tell me the name of the person you're looking for. That's not actually what Jesus is saying here. It's more of a question that aims to reveal Mary's expectations at this moment. In other words, Jesus is asking, what kind of a Messiah are you expecting? Are you really looking for a dead Messiah? You see, although Mary had such great esteem for Jesus, she was deeply uh, devoted. She had seen his miracles, listened to his teaching. And yet at this moment, it reveals that her understanding of Jesus was still too small. So here's the moment of truth. She's distraught and confused, can't understand what's going on. And Jesus says one simple word, Mary. He calls her by name. And when he says her name, she recognizes that it's him. Now, don't miss this, friends. Mary recognized Jesus because at this moment, I think memories of uh, are flooding back into her mind. She heard Jesus call her name once before when she was distraught and hopeless. We know from the gospel of Mark, verse chapter 16, and then Luke 8, that Mary had been possessed by seven demons when Jesus first met her. She was lost and helpless and in utter darkness, overwhelmed by evil that had enslaved her. And Jesus called her by name and, and delivered her from the power of sin and evil in her life. Maybe you feel that way or have felt that way. Stuck in darkness. Enslaved to sin. Confused, broken, distraught, hurting. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the only hope that you can have for true freedom, clarity, peace, and healing in your life. And you need to know this, friends. You need to remember and see this in this passage. Jesus knows your name. And he calls you by name. Did you notice what Mary does when she realizes her desperate need at this, at, this, at this moment here? She clings to him. 
he, he, he looks at her, he says, don't hold on to me. And she's clutching at him because she says, oh my goodness, it's you. She realizes that it's Jesus and she reaches out to grasp him. And this, th- th- this should be our reaction. When we're disoriented by the harsh realities of this world, when we come out of a reality of being in darkness, apart from Christ, we should grab a hold Placing our faith in him, trusting in him, clinging to Jesus like our lives depend upon him. Now, at this moment here, Jesus gently tells Mary that she has to let go because he still has to ascend to the Father. He's like, okay, there's still things yet to come. But even though her clinging to Jesus, it, it is an inspiring picture of faith Jesus looks at her and says, okay, physically, like, you need to actually let go of my ankle here because you have a role to play here. You need to go tell the disciples. You've got a job to do. There's a mission to be had. I'm going to the Father, and I'm going to send you. And this is the task of the church, spreading the message that Jesus indeed is alive, that all would know that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. Friends, this reality of Mary hearing her voice, the voice of Jesus calling her name, this should draw us back to the passage from earlier in the Gospel of John in chapter 10 about Jesus as the Good Shepherd. Do you remember this? I want to encourage you with this this morning. John 10, verses 3 to 4, you'll see it on the screen here. This is what this passage says. The sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Friends, something that you can rejoice in today is that Jesus has called your name. Listen to his voice, follow him. Will you recognize him? And some of you might be sitting there who have not taken that leap of faith out of a sense of, of, uh, of skepticism or out of a sense of, does God really love me? Or I don't quite understand this or I'm confused or I don't want that. The reality here is that the calling is that Jesus knows you, loves you, cares about you, knows your name. And he's calling you to recognize him by faith as the risen Savior, to cry out to him, to fall at his feet and grasp onto him as though your life depends upon it, because it does. And then just as Mary did, go to others and tell them about Jesus. See, Jesus is our hope, our only hope, and the one in whom we can believe and trust. Let's pray, and then we'll do some Q&A time. Father, as we, as we watch this account unfold in your word of the first people who saw, who heard, who, who are, are, are encountering the risen Jesus, Lord, we want that to, to strike us at the deepest level, to call forth a sense of devotion and trust and belief in you, Lord, that we would be reminded of the incredible shock, the, the incredible reality that 
You not only died for us, you rose from the grave. That sin is not only paid for, it's defeated. That death is not just something you endured, you conquered it. And that you have promised us resurrection life. This passage is the center of our hope. Let us cling to you. Cling to you, Lord, moment by moment, day by day. And then tell others of this incredible reality of our risen Savior. Lord, impact us with that in a fresh way today. That as we've seen last week, the work on the cross is finished. And to this week, we see an empty tomb. That all things are working towards our redemption. Being born again spiritually today and anticipating the, new, the, the, the resurrection body and the new heavens and new earth. Where all sin and evil and death will be gone. Lord, remind us of that now. In Jesus' name. Amen.